now concerning the times and the seasons. With these words, Paul is indicating a transition to his readers, and that is where we will begin, where, where we will begin this morning. As Drew shared last week at the end of chapter 4, Paul offers his brothers and sisters divine comfort in grief. When death separates them from others who are also in Christ, he instructs them and he instructs us that their grief is distinctly different than those who have no hope, and that they possess this hope, a hope that is anchored in the awesome reality that Jesus died and that he rose again, and that those who are in Christ will forever be with the Lord. And then he admonishes them to encourage one another with these very truths. But at the beginning of chapter 5, as we come to our text this morning, he moves from divine comfort to the theme of divine judgment. The Lord is going to come, and he's going to come as judge of all the earth. The day of the Lord is near, and we must live according to this reality. That is what we will find in our text this morning as we consider certain judgments and then our clear identity and then a call to decisive action. Let's read these first 11 verses together. Follow as I read. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brother, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as, as labor pains among, come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers. For, those, uh, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation." For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together this morning. God, as we come to your word I pray that you would use it in our lives, use it to change us from deep within so that we might be more conformed to the image of your son. Use it in our, in our hearts deep within so that we might be ones who live prepared for your coming. We pray these things in your son's name, amen. From nearly the beginning of time, mankind has desired to understand the point of our existence, the point of all of human history. What is the purpose of our lives? Where are things headed? Why are they headed the way they are? 
Who or what is behind the directions things are going? How did, how did things begin and how will things end? I think we can categorize man's conclusions on these thoughts into four views of history. A fatalistic view, an evolutionary view, a cyclical view, and a linear one. The fatalistic view of history says that good, bad, or indifferent, whatever will be, will be. Either there's nothing before or after life, therefore life stinks. This is a stereotypical Gen Xer thought. Or there's nothing before or after life, so live it up. After all, you only live once, so live according to YOLO, the stereotypical millennial thought. This is the fatalistic view. The evolutionary view says that we are always evolving. At its best, this view sees evolution in an upward trajectory through the survival of the fittest. And then there's the cyclical view of history that, continu- that says that history continues to repeat itself, never really going anywhere. Life is simply a series of continual renewals or reincarnations. This is a, the pagan view primarily of the Eastern world. And in none of these first three views is there any real hope at all for anyone. In the end, living for self for the moment it comes hollow and empty. In the next life, you might be a step up, maybe, if you're lucky. You might survive as more fit than someone or something else, but eventually, you will meet your match where you are not the fittest, and you will not survive. Not much hope at all in these three views of human history, but there is a fourth view. The linear view says that human history is a grand storyline and the, that that story of human history begins with, these, begins with these words when God said, let there be light and there was light. And God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from darkness and God called the light day and the darkness he called light night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. In this grand story, God created mankind who then rejected him as their rightful king. And sin and darkness entered the world that he had made. The hero of this story is Jesus, the Christ, the true light. This one who is full of grace and truth, who became flesh and dwelt among us. And we find the climax of this story as Jesus the one who lived a perfect life, went to the cross, took on himself the wrath of God for my sins and for yours. And then he rose from the grave, striking the death blow to death and the grave. This story of human history, it is not done yet there, though. It continues onward toward a conclusion And that's the direction our text points us to this morning. King Jesus, who came once as a baby, he will return again. But when he returns, he will return as conquering king and the judge of all the earth. In our text, Paul points us to the reality that the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is near. 
And we must live according to this reality. The day of the Lord is near. It is as near today as it is, has ever been for, for centuries, for millennia. God's people have been instructed to live as though the day of the Lord is near. 2,000 years ago, this was the case. And before that, this was the case. Today, we are called to live as people who practice the presence of God because the day of the Lord is near. As we look at our text this morning, the first thing that we see is certain judgments. Verse 1, Now concerning the times of the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. The first thing that we noticed here is Paul's encouragement to resist the urge toward preoccupation with the exact timing that the day of the Lord will come, with any specific chronology. He is pretty clear. Don't worry about the times and the seasons of the coming of the day of the Lord. And yet, that has not stopped us. Christian history is full of attempts to predict the dates of these events. In a book in 1688, John Napier used math to conclude that the second coming of Christ would take place in 1700. Some of you wish that that would have discredited John Napier. He was the father of, lo of logarithms. Um, for some of you, that was not fun. I was among them. No offense to our math teachers among us. John Napier, he predicted that year. He said it would take place in 1700. Uh, his book sold well for the first 12 years of its existence from 1688 until 1700. It didn't sell well after that. Cotton Mather, he pointed to 1697 as the date. We could go on and on giving examples of people throughout history and even people in our modern day who were date setters, preoccupied with the times and seasons of our Lord's return. Paul's word on, on this preoccupation is very clear. It's this. Stop it! Just stop it! Don't get focused on the days, the times, and the seasons. Instead, focus on what you know. The day of the Lord was not unfamiliar to our brothers and th sisters at Thessalonica. The Old Testament prophets had written much of it, and Jesus spoke of it as well. Whether they had actually read the Old Testament prophets or read the words of Jesus, they had certainly heard it through oral tradition Multiple times, the prophet Joel speaks of the day of the Lord as coming near. Thousands of years ago, the day of the Lord is coming near. In Isaiah 24, the prophet speaks of punishment that will come on that day. Zephaniah 1 speaks of the day as a day of wrath. Jeremiah tells us that the day of the Lord will be a day of vengeance when the Lord God of hosts will avenge himself on his foes. In chapter 5, Amos refers to it as darkness. In chapter 3, Joel again writes of judgment that will come to the nations on that day. Jesus spoke of it as well. In Matthew 24, he tells us that it will come at an hour that we do not expect. 
In his teaching here, uh, he uses the same language that Paul does in our text. In Matthew 24, 43, he tells us that if the homeowner had known what part of the night the thief was going to come, he would have stayed awake and prevented the thief. He would have been ready if he knew the time it was to come. After all, no good thief lets us know when they're going to come rob our house, right? Unless their names are Harry and Marv from Home Alone, and then they do it unwittingly. And of course, we probably wouldn't put them into the category of good thieves. If you could put those two words together. Um, maybe, maybe um, um, productive, not productive. Um, yes, you know what I'm saying. Also, in Mark 13, Jesus declares that only the Father knows the day and the hour. And then he concludes his teaching in the same way that Paul does here in our text. He says in verse 36, what I say to you, I say to all, the day of the Lord is going to come at this specific hour. No, he doesn't set a date. He simply says these two words in the, we have in our English text. Stay awake. Stay awake. It will come. Stay awake. Stay awake because you don't know when the day of the Lord will come. In the same way, you don't know if a thief, when a thief will come and plunder your home. So be ready. Be ready. After talking of the coming of the day of the Lord as a thief in the night, Paul uses another analogy for the coming judgment of God that will not be escaped and will bring sudden destruction to some this picture is a picture of labor pains that come to a pregnant woman. It is a slightly different picture because we, don't, we have no idea if a thief is going to come and plunder our home. And yet, for those who are with child, they know that labor pains are inevitable. They will come. Labor pains are part of pregnancy. Obviously, I don't speak from actually experiencing them, but from trying to be a good husband to a wife well, she was experiencing them. How many dads here are with me? No matter how much I thought I was prepared, no matter how many classes I took, no matter how many breathing techniques were practiced to try to help my wife, when labor pains came, I don't know about you, but I felt pretty helpless. I'm like, I don't know what to do. Um, I just don't know if there's any good way that I can actually help. Moms, you didn't know when they were going to come, but you knew they were going to come. They are an inevitable part of pregnancy. And so it is with the day of the Lord. It will come as a thief in the night, as labor pains inevitably come to a woman with child. And for some, when the day of the Lord comes, for those who are not prepared, it will be a day marked with inescapable destruction. Did you notice that in verse 3? As people are proclaiming that there is peace, that there is safety, in a moment that they are not expecting, sudden destruction will come and they will not escape. The day of the Lord, in it all mankind will be judged those whose eyes have been blinded by the gods of this world and therefore have not seen the light of the gospel of the glory in Christ, those who this is true of will stand in judgment 
for they have rejected God as their rightful king. The day of the Lord is a fearful day for all who have rejected God as rightful king. The day of the Lord is near, and all who are unprepared, they will face certain judgment that will end in destruction. So what do we do with these realities? Here are a few questions to consider. Are you here this morning and one who is rejecting Jesus as king? If so, today can be your day of salvation. Behold, now is the accepted time. Repent and believe in the God who has revealed himself to us in his word. Brothers and sisters in Christ, who do you interact with on a daily basis that's facing sudden destruction? What is your plan of attack for speaking the truth of the gospel to them? And are you living a life in front of them that won't betray the words that you might speak to them? When was the last time you were hit by the reality that more than three billion souls will live every single day of their lives not once hearing that they are standing in the face of judgment that is going to come, that is certain. And not once will they ever hear that Jesus is the light of the world, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. What might that reality compel you to do? Judgment is certain. It is coming. And if, if you are not prepared, it will lead to sudden destruction. The day of the Lord is coming. It's near. Judgment is certain. But also, we have a clear identity. We have a clear identity. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Here, through a contrast, Paul begins to draw a distinction between two different peoples. Those who are children of light and those who are children of darkness. And he emphatically declares that his brothers and sisters gathered at the church at Thessalonica are children of the light. Similarly, he writes to the church at Colossae, thanking God for delivering them from the domain of darkness and transferring them to the kingdom of his beloved son. As he draws this distinction, a picture that is very clear emerges regarding these two peoples. One is headed towards inescapable and sudden destruction, and the other is not destined for wrath. And he squarely puts those he's writing to in this second category. Why would Paul make this claim about those he is writing to? the claim that they were children of light, the claim that they were not destined for wrath. Was this just wishful thinking by Paul? Was he just a friend who wanted good for his friends? 
or was there a more substantial reason? Earlier, I highlighted the reality that all mankind must be judged. We will all face judgment. So how is it that they would escape certain destruction when judgment came? How was he confident that they were not destined for wrath? The answer is clear at the end of verse 9. He says this, that they will escape certain destruction through our Lord Jesus Christ. Though at one time they had rejected God as creator and therefore the rightful king over their lives, God sent his son, Jesus, the light of the world, to be the propitiation for their sins. The idea of propitiation, it is such an incredible truth. It is the wrath-absorbing sacrifice. Jesus taking on himself the wrath of God for another, for us, for you, and for me. Yes, all will be judged. But for the Christian, for the children of light, when we stand before the judge of all the earth... Instead of punishment, instead of wrath, instead of vengeance, instead of darkness, instead of judgment, there is hope. And by hope, I mean a certain expectation of a home and a future forever with God. We have hope because Jesus took on our punishment. As Murray McShane wrote, when I stand before the throne dressed in a beauty not my own. Jesus took on himself the wrath of God for my sin, and he clothed me in righteousness. Christians no longer stand under the coming judgment of the king because we have obtained salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. God said, let the light shine out of darkness, and he has shown into our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of himself making us his children. Jesus taking our judgment. Jesus clothing us with his righteousness so that when we stand one day before the judge of all the earth, he will look at us and say, not guilty. Not because of me, not because of you, but because of Jesus. This is our hope in life and death. And even as we consider the day of the Lord, looking back at what the Old, prophet, Old Testament prophets had to say of it, they highlighted this reality as well. To this point, all that I've mentioned concerning the day of the Lord in the Old Testament uh, is really speaking of it on negative terms. However, there is another side to the, the day of the Lord when Christ returns. Zechariah in chapter 14, he characterizes it also as a day of light, a day of blessing, a day of God's rule over the earth. And for those who are submitting to the kingship of Christ, God's rule over the earth is a wonderful thing. In chapter 3, Joel also speaks of the day of the Lord uh, uh, in that there is great divine blessing on that day. Yes, in the day of the Lord, there will be hope for those who are children of the light. Why did Jesus die for us? Why did he die for you? Why did he die for me? Look at verse 10 for just a moment. Paul gives us the reason here. He says that Jesus died for us, 
that whether we are alive or dead, when the day of the Lord comes, we will forever live with him. What a great hope that is. Eternity with our God. For the Christian, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And not just for a time, but for all of eternity. Our sister Ina is just in the very first moments of experiencing this forever home with God. What great hope there is for those who are children of the light. Brothers and sisters, if you are in in Christ, your identity is clear. All who have rejected the Creator as King, they are of darkness. But all who have embraced the Creator as their King, as their Lord, through faith in Jesus Christ and repentance of sin, they are, you are, we are children of light. To all those who live in darkness, sudden destruction. To all those who are children of the light, hope and blessing and a future. There is certain judgment, yes, and our identity is clear. But Paul continues on, and he shares with us a call to decisive action. Verse 6 says this, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those that sleep, sleep at night. Those that get drunk, they are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and of love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Notice with me, just before these verses that I just read, uh, in verse 5, Paul switches from they and you to we. He goes from they and you to we. In verse 5, he says this, You are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. And for the rest of our text, his language now becomes first person. After reminding the brothers and sisters of their identity, who they are as children of the light, he now challenges them and he challenges us with what we are to do because of our identity. If we are children of light, we are to act like it. There are times where I have reminded my children of what their last name is. They're getting ready to go hang out with friends or something like that, and I'll remind them, don't forget your last name. Don't forget who you are. So act like it. Live in a way that's becoming of who you are. And that's Paul's call to us here. We are children of the light. We ought to be driven in a way that leads us to live like who we are. Since this is who we are, this is how we are to live. One theologian wrote and said it this way, the gift of grace, it includes the call to obedience. The gift of grace includes in it the call to obedience. Paul is saying, act what you are. Act what you are. The first thing he points to regarding how we're to live, how we're to act, is that we are to be alert. We are to be alert. Again, here he, he contrasts light, light and darkness, day and night. 
Since we are children of the light and of the day, we are to keep awake and be sober. We are to be alert. Instead of being asleep in sin, asleep to sin in the life of the Christian, the life of the Christian is to be marked by being alert. By being alert. Darkness and night, they are often connected with sin and evil. Not just in the Bible, um, but just in everyday life. One summer in college, I had a boss who would regularly tell us this uh, as a group of college students. Go to bed. Nothing good ever happens after midnight. Go to bed. Nothing good ever happens after midnight. Occasionally, when I walk down the, the hallway in the office, I'll see another pastor who's, um, who's working and their lights are off. Um, I do that sometimes too, but I, um, I, enjoy, I enjoy a dimly lit, lit room from now um, every, every once in a while um, as I'm working. But I'll, I'll occasionally step into an office and I will remind them of these words from John chapter ni- uh, 3, verse 19. People love darkness rather than light. Why? Their deeds are evil. Obviously, obviously joking, um, but this is a reality. Men do love darkness rather than light when their deeds are evil. There is plenty that happens in darkness, under the shroud of darkness. People thinking that nobody knows, that nobody sees because it's dark. But you know who does see? The judge of all the earth, King Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, Paul admonishes the church to not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead to expose them, to expose them with the light. In 2 Corinthians, Paul characterizes those without faith as in darkness when he warns about being uh, yoked with unbelievers and says, what fellowship has light with darkness? So, as he contrasts light with darkness, he lays out this imperative. The command here is, let us not sleep. Do not sleep. But instead of being asleep, since we are of the day, we are to be awake, we are to be alive, to spiritually and morally be alert and diligent. This was Christ's call on his disciples, that they be alert so that they may not enter into temptation. Jesus speaks of this in the garden. In Mark 14, he says, as he came and found them sleeping, he said this to, si- to Peter, Simon, why are you asleep? Could you not watch but one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Watch, be alert. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. In Colossians 4.2, Paul also connects this alertness and, um, and self-control um, to a life of prayer. There he calls us to continue steadfast in prayer, being watchful with thanksgiving. Instead of being asleep, since we are children of the day, Paul also tells us to be sober. And here in this verse, be sober, it is directly connected with keep awake that comes right before it. These two ideas are driving at the same point. Paul's challenge is that we are not to be touched by slumber or by any clouding influence. Here, the, cra- the, the contrast is being sober instead of being drunk. Through the New Testament, this language points to the thinking of having a clear head in the face of danger. 
And the dangers Paul has in view here are, are definitely spiritual. This is a call for moral self-control. Guard your heart. Be alert. Be aware so that you will not fall to the temptations of the devil. When people are tired, do they generally make good decisions? I don't know about you. I don't. Uh, I don't. When people are drunk, when they're controlled with another substance, do they generally make good decisions? We could probably come up with lots of stories about how we've seen that be the case, that they just don't. The answer to both of these questions is obviously no. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, you are a child of the day. And Paul's admonishment to us this morning is act like it. Stay alert so that we might not fall to the schemes of the devil. Keep your guard up. Don't live in ways that make it easy for you to fall when temptation comes. Keep up your guard. The second thing he points to regarding how to live as we are, like we are, is that we are to be self-controlled. In verse 8, Paul issues a call to be sober, to be self-controlled. But since we belong to the day, since we belong to the day, again, he's connecting it to who we are. Act like what you are. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Paul is quoting from Isaiah 59, 17, where Isaiah writes of the judgment and redemption of the Lord and says this, that he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Not too long ago, I had coffee with one of our members, a young man who's currently in ranger school. Uh, as we were talking, he shared with me just so much equipment that he has he has collected over the last couple of years of his life so that he can be prepared. Stuff that, stuff that was issued by, by the army and stuff that he, he also felt like he needed so that he could be prepared so that when the day comes as a soldier, he can be prepared to face attack. Being prepared is vital for a soldier. After all, what happens to an ill-prepared soldier? Nothing good. Imagine, imagine a soldier with no ballistic vest, with no helmet. That doesn't seem very wise. Uh, that soldier is open to all sorts of attacks from the enemy because he's not protected. How much more important is it that we as soldiers of the cross be prepared, be vigilant, be ready the armor Paul references here for us is defensive in nature. And it's, it, it's an apt description of being prepared, of vi being vigilant. How, how can we be vigilant? How can we be prepared? How can we ready ourselves for what may come for the day of the Lord? Paul reminds us that we belong to the day. He reminds us to act like what we are. And he connects this sobriety of living, this alertness, and this sobriety of living, this preparation like a soldier, he connects them with the virtues of faith and love and hope. See it here in verse 8. But since 
we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. In in chapter 1, verse 8, Paul commends them, our brothers and sisters, for their faith in God that that was widely known. They, they didn't trust in chariots. They didn't trust in their own cunning. They, they were ones who were ready for the day of the Lord because they had faith in God. And they lived lives that evidenced that faith. In chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, Paul speaks positively regarding their brotherly love towards one another. They, they weren't preoccupied by selfish pursuits. They weren't characterized by instant gratification Those ready for the coming of the day of the Lord, they are ones who display brotherly love. As Paul calls us to be alert, to be self-controlled, he expresses confidence that our faith in God and our love to other Christians and to all people and our hope in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ will enable us to be ready in the coming of the day of the Lord whenever that actually happens. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, you belong to the day. You belong to the light. Paul's admonition to us is this. Act like it today. Stay alert so that we might not fall to the schemes of the devil. Exercise self-control with faith, hope, and love. Walk as ones who have been transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Stay alert. Live with self-control. Here are a few questions to consider. Am I awake to my sins? Do, Do I recognize what they are? What sins am I prone to struggle with? What safeguards have I put into place? Or do I need to put into place because my proclivity towards certain sins? How can I ready myself? How can I equip myself? Am I quick to repent or do I give safe harbor to secret sins in my own heart? When confronted by a brother or sister, how do I respond? Do I respond humbly or do I respond with defensiveness, protecting myself? Which is the more dominant characteristic of my life, self-indulgence or self-control? Is my life characterized by fear of circumstance or by faith in God? This past week, how have I demonstrated love towards my brothers and my sisters in Christ? How have I done this? Or what ways have I clearly not done this? In this past week, how have I demonstrated love towards non-Christians that I've interacted with? Have my actions adorned the gospel? Have I spoken the truth in love to them? We are called to be people who act like what we are. We are children of the light and not children of the darkness. That is how we are to live. There is certain judgment. Our identity is clear. And there is a call to us for decisive action. Brothers and sisters, don't get caught up in timing. Don't get caught up in chronology. Instead, live 
in ways that demonstrate readiness for the return of King Jesus. Be alert. Live with self-control. Alistair Begg put it this way. The real issue is not knowing the date. The real issue is staying alert. We sang Murray McShane this morning. He was known to regularly ask those who gathered with him for weekly Bible study at the end of their time together, do you believe the Lord will return today? Do you believe the Lord will return today? And obviously connected to that question is the the implied question, are you living like it? Are you living as one who's alert? Are you living with self-control? Brothers and sisters, we must live as who we are. If we are in Christ, we are children of the light, alert and self-controlled, practicing the presence of God. May he help us to live that way this week. Let's pray. God, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for using it to change us. God, I pray that we would be people who daily practice your presence, who daily live recognizing that at any moment you might return. God, I pray that we as a body and as individuals here gathered at Hampton Park would be, we'd we'd live in ways that demonstrate, yes, we are ready for the day of the Lord. We'd long for you to return. God, help us to live that way this week. We pray these things in your son.